This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Yadi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Welcome back. This is nice. <laughs> okay, we have been looking forward to this moment for a very long time. Um, so I want to start by saying that several years ago, Brooke Worchefter, our amazing director of community organizing, came to me and said that the leadership of Minyan Sedek, our justice uh, warriors in the community, um, decided that it was really important that we build real relationships with our representatives in government. And so we started a series that we've been doing over lunch for now many years, and we've had incredible opportunities to hear um, from members of Congress, from our mayor, from city council members, from congresspeople, from representative, from senators. Um, and it's been wonderful. And we realized that we have to meet each other where there's alignment, and we have to make clear to our representatives what our priorities are, where there's not, and also to hear from you what matters to you so that we as a faith community that's deeply committed to justice can also help pursue uh, the greater good along with uh, our electeds. Um, so I'm really grateful to this community for your open-heartedness and our willingness to listen and to engage and to learn. Um, and this is a particularly wonderful um, lunch and learn because we've been trying to get Representative Katie Porter here um, for quite some time. I do want to say that we had Representative Adam Schiff here over the years. He's actually come many times. And we also put out an invite to Representative Barbara Lee um, because what we're not going to talk a lot about in this conversation um, is the ongoing race. But I do want to make it clear that we're happy and thrilled to have all of our wonderful um, candidates here. Um, so, but let me give a brief uh, introduction to a woman who does not need any introduction, but I will anyway. Um, Congressperson Katie Porter represents the 47th District in Orange County, California. I don't know if we have anybody here who's actually in your district live, but I know we have many people who are watching the stream and will watch afterwards. In Washington, uh, Representative Porter has remained committed to putting families first and to speaking truth to power. As a member of the House Oversight Committee, she has asked tough questions of bank CEOs and administration officials to hold them accountable to the American people. Um, you are a proud member of the House Natural Resources Committee, where um, you work tirelessly for our environment, for our public lands, calling out big oil, um, taking advantage of taxpayers, and keeping families safe from wildfires and other natural disasters that we're particularly concerned about here in California. Um, I know that you are a member of the Bicameral Joint Economic Committee and a leading voice on keeping our economy strong and stable and globally competitive. And the way that you do that is by cracking down on corporate greed, boosting competition and investing in smart family-friendly policies. And we are very grateful to you for all of that work and so much more. Um, many of you know Representative Porter for her whiteboard, um, which, which is one of the great innovations in Congress uh, in the last couple of decades, which you can't use today because it's Shabbat. But I just want to say that what we have witnessed um, as we've 
Um, as we've watched you take people to task and speak truth to power over the course of the past several years, is how an educator actually thinks about transforming the public discourse. And I know that that's important to you as someone with an education background, but it's important to us because you're teaching us and you're teaching the broader public about why the policies that might be instinctive or counter-instinctual for us actually just make good sense and are just fair and just and right. And we're deeply grateful for all of that. This is, uh, this is a very long um, list of achievements and accomplishments, um, which I'm not gonna read, but I also do wanna add that as a single working mom, you have really made your voice heard and we're deeply, deeply grateful for your leadership in that space um, and the voice that you've given to so many people who um, I think before you felt like no, literally nobody understands what I go through on a daily basis. And now we look uh, at you and hear you and we feel uh, more deeply uh, understood. And I think I'm speaking for many, many people in this room. Um, so I, I thank you for being here um, and very grateful for your time as both congressperson um, and, a, and a mom of three kids. It means a lot that you're willing to spend your uh, Shabbos lunch with us. So welcome and thank you for being here. So I'll start by saying that as a, as a Jewish community, as a faith community, we are really committed to constructive and consistent civic engagement. And we actually see it as part of our moral obligation as a spiritual community to engage in the work of building democracy um, and, and sustaining our democracy. This includes voting in every single election. We have a 100% voting commitment as a community. That's hard because sometimes we're like, oh my God, is today an election day? And so what we, what we try to do is not take people by surprise, but help prepare. We have phone banks. We, have, we really insist that people become knowledgeable about the issues that are before us, really forging uh, relationships and fighting for legislation that we think uh, reflects our values. We also have been collectively deeply worried about what we've seen over the course of the past several years as an evisceration of our democracy and I just want to start by asking you um, to reflect on the state of our democracy right now and what you see as the greatest threat to our democracy and where do you see the greatest promise? Yeah, so thank you very much for having me, for the lovely introduction, um, for the delicious lunch, and for a chance to be part of your community. Um, I'm glad you started with an easy question, like a warm-up um, and a softball. And I think it really is, is true to what I've heard over the years um, from so many wonderful members of the ACAR community um, about how deeply you engage um, in thinking about the challenges facing our country. So I think democracy both here and now in this moment, and in general as a system of government, is fragile. I think it is inherently fragile. I think that is a feature, um, not a bug, although we, you know, it can become so fragile as to, as to fall apart, right? That's always the, the difficulty in fragile things. How do you handle them? How do you live with them? How do you be part of them without destroying them? And I think we're in a time where we're asking ourselves that. Um, but I think there, it's important for us as Americans to recognize that democracies around the world right now are struggling. Um, and there's Trump in so many unfortunate ways was exceptional, like exceptionally bad. Um, and so I think it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that actually democracy worldwide um, is struggling. And the really hard thing about democracy is the sustaining of it. Right, And so one of the, for me, for example, the hardest thing about 
President Trump getting elected was that I had to come to terms with the fact that we, as Americans, did that. And so in that moment, I think there were so many people who said, I didn't vote for him. I didn't, I, I phone banked for Hillary. I knew he was gonna be terrible. I tried to talk my cousin Bob into not voting for him again, like not voting for him. But what it means to be part of a democracy is to acknowledge the really hard truth that our fellow Americans, whether you think the election was stolen or, the reality is you can't eliminate the tens of millions, 100 million votes that were cast for him. And so I think that is the sort of most painful part of democracy. So when people ask me, you know, why can't we pass this or that policy that they feel like everybody is in favor of, the hard answer is because it's a democracy. And that doesn't always get us to the right answer or the just answer because it's a, pol it's a political system that is based on our own human foibles, right? Our fears, our anxieties, mm -hmm. our prejudices, our hope, our compassion. These things all go into that stew of democracy. Um, and so we are all kind of partly responsible for it. Um, I think for what gives me the greatest pause about where our democracy is going um, is, and I'm really very focused not on where it has been, that is, it's easy to say, well, it's better now than it was under President Trump. Low bar, people, low bar. That cannot be our standard for who we wanna be as a country. Better than Trump does not satisfy my soul and my sense of what I want for the world. So I think the really hard part for me right now is I'm the mother of a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 17-year-old. And, <clears throat> The thing I think the most about is how deeply shaken their faith is in democracy. And when we talk about the future of our democracy, I think that politically, today, a younger voter, a younger voter is a voter under 50. So when people say like, I lead in the polls with younger voters, they're not talking about 19-year-olds. They probably lead with the 19-year-olds too, but we have an entire generation, two almost generations of people who have only known a democracy in which Citizens United was the law of the land, mm -hmm. in which presidents broke either laws or displayed conduct that we might think is immoral, mm -hmm. um, whether it's personal conduct or political conduct, and so, you know, my, my one son said to me, Mom, I, I'm not, I, it's a good thing I can't vote in your Senate race. And I said, well, wh why not? And he said, well, because I wouldn't vote for you. <laughs> and I said, well, who would you vote for? <laughs> I mean, I have to have a lot of these conversations. It's a great race, we have great candidates. Like, and so I said, well, who would you vote for? And he said, I wouldn't vote for anybody because nobody understands that if you want to fix it, you have to burn it all down. And, and this is my son, and I reveal this to you because it really shows how much work we have to do to repair and restore confidence mm -hmm. in democracy. And so I think one of the things I would challenge you all with personally in your lives, um, as well as in your sort of collective work, is to really don't dismiss younger, again, 
Put your own definition on that. I mean, a Joe Biden younger voter is a voter not on Medicare. Okay, so I mean, it's, it's a real challenge for the Democratic Party. Um, really challenge you to, to deeply engage with them and do not dismiss hmm. their skepticism. Be empathetic to it. Think of the world that they have known, mm -hmm. which is a really different world. Like many of you were part of the civil rights movement. You were part of powerful moments in which this country did great things and created opportunity for people. The GI Bill, college tuition in California being free, the passage of the Endangered Species Act. And then ask yourself, what do young people have mm -hmm. to anchor to in government? We have to give them things. Um, or that is, I think, where our democracy is in peril. So mm -hmm. I'm, it's really how do we engage that future generation? And I'll tell you, you're not going to get there by being dismissive and telling them they'll understand it when they're older. Maybe they will, and maybe they, they won't, right? Um, but really take to heart, they are skeptical of our democracy because of what they have seen and what they have experienced. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to listen to them about how we're going to restore confidence in it. Yeah, that's so interesting to think about the impact of that administration on our children's understanding of what politics looks like, on really the whole generation. I remember he gave a speech very early on in his presidency where he was talking to a group of like 12,000 boys. Maybe it was a Boy Scout oh, gathering. That was one of the low, let me say, I was a Boy Scout leader at that time. That was one of the most horrific things President Trump ever did was talk to 20 or 30,000 young men and the things that he said yeah. make my blood run cold. I remember hearing it and I thought that, I mean, what's awful about this moment is that it's a culture shaping moment and that it's going to take generations for people to, again, to change their perception of masculinity, of power, of, of partnership, of relationship. And I, and I think it did impact a generation in a pretty profound way. You, you answered the first part, but I'm going to push you to answer the second part also, which is where do you see the seeds of hope for our democracy, given what you just said? Yeah. So I think I was part of the class of 2018 that was elected in the wake of Trump's election. Um, my classmates were and are, and I'll tell you why I use the past tense in a second, were and are transformative, potentially, of our government. Now, I use the past tense because roughly half of us will no longer be in Congress by the end of this, this coming Congress. That's the sort of casualty rate um, to losing um, tough races, to, to finding Congress unbearable in different ways, both personal and political, to not, being, to not having an institution that really supports the public servants who are doing this work and kind of gives them opportunity to, to grow. Um, but that class of people, we were different. Um, and everybody who was, when I, they first told me that when I got elected, I was like, I don't know, we look pretty ordinary to me, right? But then I got into Congress and I started seeing who typically impopulates that place, and we were different. Um, and I think, I think that Keeping those people's voice, keeping them there, keeping those people's voices lifted up, keeping it strong, um, because these are people who came into democracy at its lowest moment. They stepped into, a, into the breach of the post-Trump um, moment, and I think that 
that collectively, and I think about so many of my colleagues when I say this, um, there's kind of an energy um, and a willingness to confront just how hard this is. Mm -hmm. We don't put a shiny gloss on it, right? We don't say, well, soon it'll be back to the way it was. It's not ever going back to the way it was. It doesn't mean that the future can't be bright, but to be clear, to me, the way Congress was 20 years ago was a Congress where I couldn't even have served. A Congress where I could never have gotten elected. Where so many of my colleagues, the first Native Americans, the first lesbian mothers, the first, that they wouldn't even have been elected. So I don't want to go back to that. I think the people who are willing to envision a different political future are the ones that, that give me the most hope. And so that's everything from activists to people working in community to people who are currently in office. Um, but I think... I really would push everyone to have that forward mentality and to be careful how much time you allow yourself to spend, however good the good old days were for you, that I think the moral task on all of us in our democracy is to think about how great the next days can be. Mm. And I, I think that this election and the election of President Biden, like there was kind of a longing for the the past that was understandable. But I would say I've actually been really inspired by President Biden about how forward-thinking he's been on some things. And I'll, I'll give you one example. I never thought that the president who most deeply understands caregiving, caregiving work, the importance of caregiving, what it means to people's mental health or economic potential would be, would be President Biden. That just wasn't on my bingo card. He's, He's older, he's a man, he's white, and there is no president we have ever had who understands caregiving and is passionate about it more than him. And we have a Congress who can't quite catch our 80, whatever he is, year old, I don't even know how old he is because I don't care, I'm voting for him. Um, I can't even, you know, who can't catch up to this person who is so visionary about caregiving and caregivers, both for elderly and seniors and, and others. So to me, that seeing what he's done in his presidency and how he has changed um, and, and sort of been willing to, to say that he was wrong and to rethink and to continue to learn is really inspiring. Yeah, thank you. I'm gonna come back to that point about empathy in a couple minutes. And let me just say that I know a lot of folks here, um, for, for many of us, Israel-Palestine is really top of mind and I am gonna ask you about that, um, but I wanna talk about that at the end and not the beginning because the work that our community really invests in on the day-to-day -day is work in climate justice, racial justice, housing, economic justice. So I wanna make sure that we don't back burner those things that are part of our really da daily important work, even as this, um, this terrible war takes so much of our head and heart space. Um, I wanna talk about housing. Um, and the, so there's a, in, in, the, in the Torah, there's, this, there's a line that talks about the Jubilee, this 50th year, and it says, ukratem dror ba'aretz, and you shall, Proclaim liberty throughout the land. And the word drawer is an interesting word for liberty. It's not the most obvious word for the Torah to use. Um, it should have said something like chofesh, chofshi, but instead it's drawer. And the rabbis make this little, um, this little drash, this little sermon, and they say the reason why is because drawer is connected to dira. Do you know what that means? Apartment or house, right? And that you cannot have liberty, you cannot have freedom, if you do not have a home. And so we, um, as our community has grown, um, and we, we've contemplated 
what it would be like to pray not in a basketball gym. And <laughs> over the course of time, we were able to purchase a property and we're in the process of, um, of developing and imagining uh, and raising money for this, uh, for this incredible platform for a home-free car, platform for multi-faith justice work. Um, and we made the decision as a community that we were going to also use that space to build um, 60 units of permanent supportive housing on site. This is awesome. And I really am very thankful to Melissa Balaban, our CEO, and Michelle Rosenthal, and, and Brooke, and many of the people who are in this room for advancing this. I mean, this is like a full-time job. This is part of the problem. It shouldn't be a full-time job to be, for when, the, when we have the land, we have the community, we have the partner, and we know we have the people who need homes, and it's excruciating. The process is multi-year. There's so many barriers to building housing. What, why is that, and what can we do to to sort of grease the wheels or loosen the, I don't know what the right expression is, but to make it so that we can actually address this crisis. Because for many people who are living on the street, every day is a crisis and a trauma, and we just have to be responsible about taking care of it. And we have this like, yes, in our backyard mentality, and we still are having trouble getting it done. So can you tell us from your vantage point, what could or should the government be doing differently to make really good, affordable housing available to every single person in this country? Okay, so let me give you a one-word answer. So she asked, what should the government be doing to make affordable, good quality housing available to every American? Try. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because for 30 to 50 years, the federal government has largely abandoned that as a policy goal. You used the phrase, Rabbi, grease the, grease the wheels. And, and I'll tell you, I, I use that phrase when I talk about housing too, and let me tell you how. Did you know there's not a housing committee in the US Senate or the US House? There's a banking committee, and housing is a subcommittee of that. And doesn't that tell you what you need to know about how Washington thinks about housing? Housing is there to sort of grease the wheels of profit for Wall Street. We don't, housing is more than a financial thing. It is, as you know, it's, it's a, it's a, a profoundly affects virtually every aspect of your well-being. Whether you have clean air, clean water, whether you have job opportunities, whether you're safe in your community, whether your kids, the kind of education they're gonna, they're gonna have. And where does Washington locate this? Is Wall Street humming along? Mm -hmm. Is the money engine going burr? That is a really important starting place. So I'm gonna give you some very specific examples of housing policy, but I wanna start there, which is the federal government for about 50 years has pointed the finger down at the state governments, which have pointed the finger at the county, at the county, which points it at the city, and then everybody wonders why we've gotten here. This is not a problem of the last two years. This is not a problem of the pandemic. This is a problem 50 or 60 years in the making. Um, and so the first thing I would say is the federal government needs to own this problem. I said this to one of my California colleagues. I said, well, you know, what do you think about the Democratic Party platform on housing? And he said, do we have one? And I said, right. 
That, that's my point. So even now, even today, as you have people come to your Lunch and Learn, when they hear a question about housing, they will talk about homelessness, which is, and particularly street homelessness and chronic homelessness, which is the most acute, painful, and visible part of this crisis, but it goes so much deeper than that. The truth is most Americans cannot, who do not already own a home and will not inherit one, are not able to afford one. Most, not just in California, not just in Orange County, across the country. I gave a talk at UC Davis um, in February, um, and I asked, this is UC Davis, it takes a 4.0 basically to get into Davis today. And I asked the group of 70 graduate and undergraduate students, how many of them expected to be able to buy a home in California in their lifetime? Not a hand went up. Wow. Now, we can debate whether they're too pessimistic or they were just a shy bunch, but the truth is, even if they're wrong, that is a huge problem of community and of politics for us. So the first thing I would say is the federal government needs to say the home ownership crisis is a crisis of federal policy. This is not to let off the hook. And I represent some of these charming communities like Huntington Beach, localities that have failed and blatantly disregarded affordable housing ordinances. There is blame to go around at every level of government. But this is a crisis in which the number of zeros and the level of imagination it's going to take to get us out of it must have a federal component at its core. And so this is my number one issue. When I went to run for the Senate, people ask me, they always want you to know your top three issues. I don't know what's magic about three, um, but I always would just respond with one, housing. Mm. Because it is without solving this, we cannot solve problems like in income inequality. We can't actually address climate justice. We, we're not gonna be able to solve you know, the problems of, of recruiting workforce and, and being able to be competitive in a global economy if we, we can't house um, our communities. Let me give you some specific examples of what's wrong. Um, the, there's a, currently a rule that the federal government, HUD, FHFA, um, cannot finance the construction of one to four units, so think low to moderate density, the kind of housing that is very palatable in virtually any community, they can't finance the construction of those housing units for sale. So that's why they're not getting built. That's it. They'll finance the construction of them for rental, but they can, the government cannot finance the construction of one to four unit residential property for sale. And that's exactly the kind of housing we need a lot more of a lot more duplexes and, and four-unit buildings and, and sort of three-story complexes. Um, we need everything. We need ADUs. We need all of it. We need senior housing. We desperately need housing for people with disabilities. Um, but the government literally, we have to backstop this. Um, if we let Wall Street build what it profits from, we will not end up with the right mix of kinds of housing and the affordability of housing that we need. It isn't that Wall Street won't be part of this, but the federal government is going to bound and put the contours on and incentivize Wall Street to build what we need, not what it profits from the most. And when I explained this to someone, they said to me, it was actually in an event um, uh, here in LA hosted by some um, the car members, someone said, well, 
But Representative Porter, you know, I don't think the federal government should be involved in, in housing that way. And I said, well, may I ask, sir, about your mortgage, if I may be so bold? And the person said, well, I put down 20% and I have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. He said very righteously. And I said, well, guess what? You have a mortgage that exists only because the federal government backstops it. So you, sir, are exhibit A for why the federal government needs to be involved in housing. They're involved in your housing. They're involved in housing for people who can afford to put 20% down. What they haven't been involved in is really actively creating meaningful, good quality housing for people who can't. Mm. Um, I'm a big fan of exploring shared appreciation models, um, which is the idea is that um, you purchase the house and somebody owns, you purchase part of the right to the appreciation, you get the right to live there permanently, um, and you get the right to all the rights that come with painting the walls and making it your own. But as the property appreciation grows, that is shared between the entity who helped you get into that home and you. Um, I think that's important. I'm a big fan of land trust development. Um, I myself, somewhat controversially, live in housing like this. I own my house. I don't own the land it sits on. I basically live in a non-movable, like, trailer house, sort of. I mean, it's actually a very nice house, it's stucco, but like, it's, it's, it, the idea is that I don't own the land because the land needs to be permanently and forever available for workforce housing for people who work at the University of California, Irvine. It's an incredibly innovative model and it works really, really well. So we need to have a lot more innovation at the federal level. So when I say a big federal investment, I do mean one with lots of zeros, but I also mean a big investment of imagination. And there are things that work locally. There are heroes and people and developers and builders who have these tools and ideas and, and innovation, and they are hamstrung by the fact that we have no federal rules. This is all left to a real tangled mess of county and local and state, and it is a thicket. It is virtually impossible um, to get through, and that adds a lot to our cost of housing. So we are gonna have to streamline um, how we're going to build this next housing. And the best way to do that streamlining without eviscerating quality, without allowing discrimination to flourish in housing markets, which is what will happen if you remove all regulation, um, shoddy construction, dangerous um, construction, is to have the federal government sort of take over some of that, that regulation. So it's one-stop shop if you qualify for this federal government affordable housing project, this is your, this is your list of rules. It's all here, there's one person you call um, to do it. The last thing I'll say, and I was talking about one of, with one of you before this is, I, I think we need to rethink who's actually in charge of housing. Does anybody know what agency is in charge of housing? HUD, maybe? FHFA, VA, Treasury, FH, you see in the problem here? This doesn't work because everybody points the finger at somebody else mm. um, about who's, even at the federal level. And I think even wedding together housing and urban development has kind of cramped how even HUD understands what its role is. Like, what about the extreme dearth of quality housing for our farm workers in rural areas? Mm -hmm. How does that fit into urban development as a mission? 
it, it doesn't, and so then HUD looks the other direction often on that. Um, so this is my number one passion. I got my start in public service, um, working on housing issues. I did research exposing how the mortgage companies that cheated people into subprime loans they could not afford were then cheating them on the way out when they were foreclosing on them. Um, and so this is my passion, and there's, this is California's number one issue. I believe this is our economy's number one issue. It must become Washington's number one issue. Thank you. I, um, I really resonate to your passion about this, and I'm thinking about how many number one issues I have. <laughs> I think I have like eight number ones. Um, but one of my number one issues, and something that I think we are deeply invested in as a, com in a, as a community, is climate justice. And over the break, I read an incredible book written by my friend Brian McLaren, um, who's a pastor who wrote a book called Life After Doom. And he essentially lays out the four possible scenarios of what the climate catastrophe could look like. And let me tell you that the best possible scenario is really terrible. And, so, and that's if we totally get our act together and we do every single thing culturally, legislatively, um, you know, politically, socially that we can and we're not. So I want to talk about that with you um, for, just a, for just a moment because there's so many things we want to touch on in our short time together. I mean, obviously, the climate legislation is really a very significant win. Um, and also, we know that it, it, didn't, it hasn't turned out to be all that everybody hoped that it could be. Um, and so I wonder if you can share with us some of your thinking on um, what is being done through this, through which pieces of the bill do you think uh, are, are the most significant? And what else could be done at this point of re really the 11th hour, this moment of great urgency to address the climate crisis um, at really as with the, with the amount of, um, of resource and energy that it deserves so that we can hope for some kind of future for our children and grandchildren. Yep. So um, I would say that one of the arguments that we need to be mustering kind of politically um, is to help people understand, including people who are concerned about the cost of all this, about the trade-offs between working on climate um, and working on other problems that we have in this country, is this only gets more expensive. The cheapest time to fix climate change is today. It only gets harder and more expensive, and there are fewer good options if we let it keep going. So, Unfortunately, I would say climate and Washington's approach to climate is really a perfect illustration of what I believe Congress's motto is. Solving yesterday's problems tomorrow, maybe. <laughs> That's really where we are with climate. This was a yesterday problem that we are trying to solve today, and maybe we're going we're gonna to get there. One of the challenges with the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the really the big climate um, energy, green energy legislation, is that most of this stuff is multi-year. And you cannot fix a 50-year, 70-year, 80-year addiction to fossil fuels and, and pollution in a four-year presidency, right? You can't fix it when Republicans take back control of Congress and spend, as they did this last year in the House, and spend all the time trying to unwind Every single hearing in natural resources, well, that's not quite true. There's one exception I can think of. But virtually every single hearing in natural resources is about how to unwind 
some aspect of the Inflation Reduction Act. The others are about, ready for this? How to kill endangered species. Like how to kill more grizzly bears. Did you know that that's in a priority for the American people? That was actually an actual hearing we had. I, I was like, I cannot believe, sometimes I just want to poke my eyes out. Um, I could not believe that that was their priority, right? Trying to kill more species that we have managed to recover. Um, so I think that for me, the most exciting part about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it takes aim at all different levels. So for too often, we've thought about climate as a household issue, climate as a uh, business issue. This really touches on all of it, and I think that's important. I will say that some aspects of the implementation have left a lot to be desired. So at a hearing recently, I told a story about a constituent who wanted to get a heat pump. And they live in an area where it's getting warmer and warmer. Houses didn't traditionally have air conditioning. A heat pump also keeps you cool, confusingly. Um, and they wanted this, this um, heat pump, and when is it gonna be available? And this constituent voted for the Inflation Reduction Act. It's me, and I still can't figure out how to get this and what kind of rebate or credit or where I go or how I apply. And if I can't figure this out, how do you think everybody else is doing? So it turns out, I think I figured out the answer. I think by reading some IRS publications, which I know is what every American likes to do <laughs> when we have a, a world and a, a, a country in which you know, the functional reading level is eighth grade. I think definitely spending time at irs.gov is how we're gonna get people to purchase these energy efficient appliances. So it is, there have been some really lumpy aspects of this. Um, one of the other ones that concerns me is I, I think we have been, um, we have not understood the real permitting reform challenge. So permitting reform is a Republican phrase that we need to take back. So I urge you all to become evangelists for permitting reform and to own that phrase and to give it its proper meaning. For Republicans, permitting reform means making it easier for fossil fuel companies to drill anywhere and everywhere they want for as long as they want speculatively. That, that's what permitting reform means to them. But don't let that blind you to the fact that we desperately need permitting reform. Because what we need to do is have easier permitting to build more electrical transmission. So the places that are gonna generate the green energy and the clean energy are not gonna be this, the same places that the wind, the solar, they're not in the same places as the fossil fuels are. And so we have to have many, many more electrical transmission lines and interstate um, transmission projects. So that is, I think, like, I would like to say that's low-hanging, but I will tell you that Republicans oppose this. But that is the permitting reform that we really are going to need to unleash, because even as we're building and investing in um, wind farms and solar and other things, if we don't have the ability to move it around and we don't have the grid to store it and keep it stable, we're not gonna be very successful. And I, I think it's an intentional strategy by the fossil fuel industry to, to basically try to doom these forms of energy to not being stable um, and not being easily to, to move. The other thing we haven't tackled in Congress is, look, we have to end the tax subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. It, it ha they have to play by the same set of rules as green energy. 
So what you hear about is all the, the so-called subsidies to green energy. The truth is they're not even a fraction of the tremendous tax subsidies we have given decade after decade after decade to fossil fuels. So I'm really proud that my legislation, which was part of the Inflation Reduction Act, raised the royalty rate, uh, what fossil fuel companies pay when they drill on our public land. It hadn't been raised in 100 years. So it cost, it was, it, was, it was way, way more expensive to drill on Texas state land than it was on our federal land. That's how far out of whack our federal policy had gotten. So I'm, I think we have to put them on a level playing field and we have a long ways to go um, in order to be able to do that. Mm. that. I mean, that's devastating because we know that even if we did absolutely everything right, we're facing a really, really tragic future and we're, there's such a battle ahead. So I just want to quickly say one more thing, I promise I'll be quick, is you talked about climate justice um, and I want to sort of encourage everybody to really, really engage in understanding that all energy has pollution. All energy, there is no magic energy. Um, and there are really important questions that we need to be confronting about whether we are going to repeat the climate injustices of the fossil fuel era in the clean energy era. And so whether that's how we cite these things, how we deal with indigenous rights, how we deal with the communities that are gonna be polluted for decades to come that were fossil fuel, um, do, we, do we put the green energy there to keep good jobs in those communities or are they gonna be left behind? Um, climate justice has to have that component. I mean, wind farms have harms too. They are much less but they have harms too, and we need to really, I think, be thoughtful here in California, particularly, where we have so much diversity, and we frankly have, like in Southeast LA, some of the worst climate injustices in the nation. I think it's a really important place for us to lead in thinking about that. Yeah, thank you. And by the way, Brian McLaren talks about some of that in his book. The book will come out in a couple months, and I highly recommend it for folks who are interested in this. Um, you started to talk a little bit about racial justice, which is very much part of this conversation. Um, and I'm cognizant of the time. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask you two more questions, even though I have many, and then I wanna open it up for a little Q&A, and so we'll just keep eyes. I know, um, I, I, know I wanna just be, be cognizant of that. Um, there, um, I, so I, I gave a sermon some years ago um, on High Holy Days about reparations. Um, it's rooted in a particular Mishnah um, ancient Jewish code of law. It's a, dis it's a dispute between two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, over what happens when someone builds a home with a foundation based on a beam that was stolen from your neighbor's, uh, from your neighbor's backyard. And so Shammai says, if your home is built on a stolen foundation, you need to tear down the house, take the beam, and return it to your neighbor. And Hillel says, that's incredibly impractical. It's a beautiful house. That would be very wasteful. Don't, don't tear down the home, but you actually have to compensate your neighbor, not, not even for the value of what it was when you stole it, but for what it is now at the foundation of your home. And so we're, I'm very invested in the conversation around reparations for black Americans. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you think the federal government's responsibility is um, to black Americans and to indigenous, uh, and to indigenous uh, communities here to begin to address some of the many injustices um, that underlie the disparities in, in wealth, in health, and in, in, in treatment under the law. Mm -hmm. 
So I think this is a really incredibly important discussion to be having, and so I want to commend you for, for leading your community and thinking about this. Reparations benefit all Americans. And I think that's a really important thing to say um, because we're in this political moment um, driven in part by Trump and by the forces that he unleashed that were there, which is this politics of scarcity, which is if I get something, then you won't have it, right? And, and Democrats are bad about this too. Um, I hate to say it, but I am willing to, to push my own party to do better. Um, this idea that we'll do a little bit for this group and a little bit for that group and something for these people. And, oh, it's June, we got to do something for LGBTQ, and then it's, you know, it's Pride Month. I mean, we need to do things that lift up all Americans with an eye to the fact that the lift will look different and be different in scale, scope, and size depending on where they are starting. And where people are starting structurally is something that we all own. We all own that, right? And so reparations are something that by healing some of these things, by making every American have the opportunity to thrive, we are all better off. Mm -hmm. So we have to get out of this idea of thinking about reparations as something that we sort of do once and it makes it better and it sort of erases the past and reparations are really an ongoing effort to achieve the kind of equality and justice that, that we believe our country should model. Um, so I think Sheila Jackson Lee's bill to have a commission about this is important. I followed with interest the California Commission. I think there were some good things that came out of it and some things that maybe make the project more difficult um, that came out of it. But I also think that one of the projects that needs to go hand in hand with reparations is being willing to take a hard look at the policies we have been using to help and uplift and address the harms of the black community. So, you know, the reality is that education today is as or more segregated as it was mm. before Brown versus Board of Education, right? The reality is that generation, decades of affirmative action, while they help many amazing individuals thrive, don't solve the fact that the deep inequities in our schooling that begin at birth have not been addressed. So I think one of the things that reparations should call us all to do is to really dig deep on what the policy solutions might look like. I think, you know, kind of thinking about more in the buckets we have, there is no doubt that communities of color, especially black and indigenous communities, have not received the level of funding that is commensurate with what they need, even on a per capita basis, much less what they need to actually flourish. But I also think I want to think about policies that are, that are better than what we've been doing. I don't know that just more of always the same is going to get us where we want to go. So I think about the benefits of things like College for All, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which gives us all a stake in making sure that black Americans can achieve the same educational outcomes that, that white people have. It doesn't mean you won't have to deliver that policy differently to make the outcome achievable um, and to get to the end goal. Um, because I think we've seen if you design policies and you claim that you are race blind, what you really are is reproducing systemic discrimination. And so we, I think we need policies that are really thoughtful about how they will be delivered, how they will affect um, black and indigenous communities in order to get there. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for that. Um, we're gonna go to questions in a moment, but I wanna talk a little bit about Israel and about this war and the shifting ground uh, that we're on right now. And um, 
I've spent you know, a good amount of time in the last three months talking to other elected officials who feel like I went into this business because I wanted to build affordable housing, and now all of a sudden I'm expected to know exactly the right way to nuance my statement about Hamas and about Israel and how do I deal with this? And it's not, it's not really what drove most American elected officials into office in the first place, but you are uh, also on the front lines now in many ways. And um, and, you know, I'm thinking of one elected in, uh, in particular who told me that she found her face on a poster with words terrorist underneath, and then she found her face on a, um, on a poster with genocider underneath. And she's like, literally everyone thinks I'm getting it wrong. And, you know, again, I just want to build housing. So I am wondering if you can tell us as a community that's really obviously, I mean, we're in deep um, sorrow and, and anguish and great concern about what's going over what's going on over there in this, um, in both, both uh, October 7th and also the aftermath of the atrocities, if you can, if you can and this ongoing war, um, if you can tell us how you are navigating this impossible discourse um, and a, a little bit about what you see as the role of Congress um, in trying to address this in a way that will have a meaningful impact on the people whose lives are um, being affected on the ground every day. Yeah. This has been and continues to be literally each, each day, each morning, um, when I look at the news, an incredibly heartbreaking um, situation for the hostages that are still there, for who are healing, and those who have been released who are healing from trauma, for the soldiers um, who are serving in the IDF and, and their families, for the people of Gaza um, who are, are dying. Um, including children. Um, this is a really, really heartbreaking situation. I, I think you don't, you said, you know, people are like, well, I didn't, I didn't want to work on this issue. Well, I mean, I didn't want to work on President Trump, but there he came, right? So <clears throat> I think you, you, tough, tough is what I would say to that person. Um, we have a duty, all of us, I think, as Americans, um, when we're seeing this kind of human suffering to dig in, to educate ourselves, to learn, to think, um, collectively and individually about what might, uh, what might end this conflict, what might be a better future for the people of Gaza and for the state of Israel. Um, and so, you know, I will say that I, I sympathize with the story you told about everybody's mad at you. Um, I, I think I've, I have felt that sometimes. Um, I think that's a dynamic to some degree, even in, my, in this particular Senate race. I am really proud of the position that I've tried to stake out which is one that is really focused on how do we create better lives for the people of Gaza and the people of Israel. We, we have to be able to, and it sounds simple, but a lot of my colleagues can't articulate that as a goal. They, they won't even articulate that the pain and the suffering is, is across the region. Right? I mean, this is a terrible, terrible time for Israelis. It is a terrible, terrible time for the people of Gaza and, and the people of the West Bank, too, and, and to the, the diaspora, both Jewish and Palestinian around the world. So <clears throat> I think one of the things is I've been trying to push us to think about how do you get to a ceasefire? It is not as easy as saying the word. There's a lot of political pressure for, for people to be, in, quote, in favor of a ceasefire. Who is not in favor of a ceasefire? We should all want this conflict to end. That doesn't answer the question about how, when, on what terms, with what 
sort of boundaries do we put on that ceasefire to, to keep the violence at bay and to, to create a better future? Um, I think the role of the United States as an ally to Israel is to push Israel to answer some of these questions. Um, I think we need to both support Israel and help it in things like negotiating for the return of the hostages, but also press them on sort of, you know, are your actions in the West Bank in this moment making Israel safer? Right? Or, or is there short-term political gain and long-term security risk that's being created by what you're doing? Um, and so I think, you know, this concept to me of standing with Israel isn't a kind of passive standing behind. It is a standing with. It is an active kind of constant conversation and dialogue. And you have to be willing to have that conversation and dialogue with people who are um, losing, you know, who are losing family members, who are worried about um, what's happening in Gaza. And so I've been really proud that I, you know, on October 8th, I had a town hall at my mosque. That was a hard place to walk into. Um, and I, I did it. And I, I think what most concerns me about this moment politically is um, pe people are just basically saying like the goal is to say nothing. Mm -hmm. The goal is to think nothing. The goal is to, no matter what you say, you're gonna be in trouble. Because there's some real truth to that. I have seen those exact same, I have had newspaper headlines that I am anti-Semitic. I have had red paint smeared all over my front yard saying that I am a genocidal murderer. And so how do you anchor and kind of care for yourself in this moment? I think a lot of us in Congress are really struggling with that um, because we're trying to chart, think about what does leadership mean in this moment? And for me, a lot of what leadership has meant is helping people who disagree to be in conversation with each other. I mean, I represent Orange County. So I've got a third Republicans, a third Democrats, and a third kind of we hate everybody, no party preference voters. And how I bring this, how I win in this community and how I bring these communities together is through a lot of conversation, a lot of sharing of facts, a lot of dialogue, and a lot of being willing to take the political risk of having the conversation. Mm. And in this moment, even having a conversation is perceived to be choosing a side. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so problematic. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what we're seeing, I'm sure you're seeing here in LA, deep strains on our interfaith community, which has been such an important part of how we've been able to address anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, hatred generally. The fabric of that community is really being strained by this conflict and I, I think will take a, a while to repair. So some of the concrete things that interest me most, I would like to see the Israel and the United States affirmatively develop a plan to rebuild Gaza. Um, and, and to, to begin to fund that um, now and to think about not just rebuilding the, the hard infrastructure, but how are we gonna rebuild the soft infrastructure, the education system, the system of leadership? Um, I don't think it's adequate for Israel to say, well, there's, there's no good leaders. That, that's certainly true if we're talking about Hamas. They are, they are not, they should not ever be in power, ever again. Um, but then what? And what is the role of Israel in cultivating um, and creating a kind of, um, as, a, as a neighbor, um, as someone who cares about people? Um, and so I, I think of myself as a progressive Zionist, and I think that has been 
a lonely place to be politically. Um, and so that was part of the reason I was excited to come here in conversation today. But one of you said before we started, where is the place that you can think about how to create a better future for Israel and the people of Palestine, for Israelis and Palestinians? Where is that place? And I said, well, I can tell you where it's not, mm -hmm. Congress. So we are not even having the debate in Congress about these issues. What we are having is a lot of silencing. And I, I think that, for me, is, is the most domestically, as I think about what the domestic consequences are of this horrible international conflict, mm -hmm. the silencing, the, the political lesson here is don't engage. Mm -hmm. I, that, I mean, that's really tragic. And we've been talking a lot in our community about the kind of false binaries of this moment. And, uh, and that the response to the, the toxic binary space is say nothing, do nothing, is really problematic. And so I really appreciate what you're saying. And we've been using the language of, of like creating third way spaces where we can actually talk about what our core values are. Unfortunately, they don't often fit on flags and on, you know, T-shirts. It's hard to articulate what those core values and core commitments are. But I'm, here I'm going to quote Daniel Sokatch, who's, um, who's one of the founders of ECAR and runs the New Israel Fund. But he says, like, our, our, we always safeguard our core values. Our core values are the same regardless of what the externals are. And so I really appreciate that. I will say from my perspective that I really hope um, that representatives in Congress will really push and advance a conversation about a long-term negotiated solution and an end to this conflict. Um, we, we have to really cast our gaze to a future in which two peoples can live in two states side by side. I know that that dream seemed dead to many people for many years, but now I think it's become clear to many of us once again that this is really the only way. And I, we have to deal with the immediate. Dead? Then what? Then what, right. So, and, and I wanted I wanted to say one more thing here, and, and then we're going to just take two or three comments from the from the community. Um, so, if you have if you have questions, and Elise uh, is around, and and we'll uh, um, hi Elise, and thank you for everything. Um, I also want to say I um, I spoke a little bit this morning about anti-Semitism, and among many of the things that we've discussed here, and I'm really uh, I'm grateful for your attention to it and awareness. Uh, of what's going on, and I believe we have to take this very, very seriously. I'm also deeply concerned about the weaponization of anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. and I use that word carefully. I mean, people throw around weaponization a lot, but I actually think that we've seen a lot of this lately, and I don't think that it keeps my family safer. Mm -hmm. I don't think it keeps our community safer, and so I want to be careful that especially in these conversations in Congress, that, that when we're talking about fighting anti-Semitism, um, that, that, that that conversation is being held in a way that will actually keep Jews safer rather than advance some kind of like anti-woke agenda or something, which I think ultimately um, actually endangers all of us and endangers our democracy. Um, so with that, I'm going to, um, I'm going to see, well, literally we can only take a couple of comments. So I'm going to start with Adam Weissman over here because he's the, one of the leaders of our, of our justice work, um, Eddie Carr, and uh, also a board member with a really beautiful baby. And so we're going to start. We'll start with you, Adam. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I have another super easy question for you. Um, so in addition to volunteering for ECAR, I'm a TV writer. I want to thank you for coming to our uh, picket lines. Um, so I think that strike and all the strikes we have 
are the result of monopolistic, anti-competitive behavior um, by corporations, and that seems to be a rare area of bipartisan agreement, and we've seen the DOJ and the FEC uh, fail, or FTC rather, fail to you know, get verdicts in antitrust cases. So what can be done in Congress to curb uh, that behavior by corporations? Yes. I love this question because the, the question I've always wanted to be asked and never have been is, what's the sexiest, coolest thing President Biden's done? And nobody ever asked me that. And so the answer is actually the topic of his question, which is, the most, for me, the thing you don't know about President Biden that is the most amazing thing about his policies are the way that he has attempted to dismantle really 50 years of corporate consolidation and monopolistic corporate abuse. And um, it is not always successful. There have been setbacks in that. But we are at least having a conversation about antitrust, about monopoly power, about corporate consolidation that we weren't even having um, even five or six years ago. And so I, I think we are making progress. I will say it's an interesting issue. There is bipartisan support. That is, there are Democrats and Republicans who are interested in thinking about how do we revisit our monopoly laws? Do we have the right tests? Do we have the right standards? Do we have the right remedies when there is antitrust? Most of our antitrust law was written in the 1930s, so it's really old and has not been revisited. Um, interestingly, there are also a huge number of Republicans and a very sizable chunk of Democrats who don't want to talk about this. So the divide in Congress on this is a divide between people like me who ran for Congress, never taking corporate PAC money, pledging from day one, have never taken that, never will. Like, I, my bread and butter is speaking truth, you know, holding powerful people to account. I don't care if you're, what you're a CEO of. If you're hurting American people, we're going to be talking about it in a hearing soon. And, and there are Republicans who actually are willing to do that too. But there are an awful lot of Republicans and a good chunk of Democrats who say, well, like, Amazon doesn't want me to do that. And, and that's a lot of Congress, right? So it's, it's, we do have a movement, but I would say it's, it's not at the tipping point yet politically um, in terms of Congress really being willing to engage on this issue. So we've had some legislative ideas, but they have not gotten a vote. Um, if they have gotten a vote, it has been like with assurances, I'll vote for that so long as you promise me it dies in the Senate. Kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, which is really disingenuous. Um, and so I think probably congressional action will be, will be needed um, to think about this. But I, I would also say one of the things I think we're making progress on is understanding that monopolies are not just in big tech. We have a bread monopoly in this country. Did you know that? 40% of all bread is made by one company. We have a cereal monopoly. I mean, it's actually really hard to think of an area, an industry, where we don't have either a risk or a reality of monopoly power. So I, I think this will require probably congressional action. I also think it will involve a Supreme Court that isn't corrupt by corporate power um, and as sort of appointing some judges who are willing to, to take on big corporations. Okay, we're going to just take two more questions, and then we'll have you both ask at once, and then how do I decide? Susan, Elise, 
Let's just, uh, I think Louie has a hand and then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Oh, we got our next two. Okay. You can both ask and then you can answer both at once. Are you okay? We shouldn't ask. I wanted to ask you a question. If we don't diagnose the problem, how can we find a solution? And we're all touching it around really nicely. We are a more than 20, 200 years old empire. And historically, empires rise and fall. And you're saying about the permits and how much we need the reform to streamline. I wanted to point out to how the state of Israel of the time that my parents came to Israel solved the housing problem. They went from the solution to the solution first. No Jewish person who survived the Holocaust will live outdoors. So they started with tents and simple buildings Nothing fancy, but a million people came to Israel since 1950 and absorbed by 600,000 poor Jewish people. In other words, it's possible to do it. So how do we get inspired to make the change that we need to make? Great. And we see the crippling pushing the, the, the solution to others, like education and housing. Those are basics. That's how you grow ignorant people who will vote the way they vote. So can you diagnose it for us, please? Thank you. And let's just take the second question now, and then we'll have you address both of them at once. This builds on something Congresswoman you mentioned earlier about being forward-looking and something the rabbi mentioned in her sermon today about trying to reframe in our own lives questions about what keeps us up at night into questions about why we get up in the morning. Um, I have always taken affirmativeness as the core of empowerment in politics, and I'm hearing a lot of that coming from you. I think that's something that our political system pushes back against, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna use my phone just to read a quote from my friend who is much smarter than me on these. He says, what are you proud of is often a more productive question to ask someone to understand their politics than who do you hate. Mm -hmm. Who do you hate is extremely illustrative, just not very productive. So, Congresswoman, I'm, I'm hopeful that in whatever domain you like, maybe as part of your answer to the previous gentleman's question, you'll tell us a little bit about what you're proud of, what you believe America should be proud of, what you want the America that you're in the Senate to lead will be proud of when you're done, um, and how, how that pride should be shared across this country, urban, rural, Jew, Muslim, black, white? Super easy questions, super quick answers. Um, let me start with a concrete thing that I'm, that I'm really proud of, um, and I think it, it illustrates some of what I want to accomplish. Um, there was a moment in the pandemic early on where there was, there was you know, no, much less no care protocols, there was no testing, there was no ability to figure out if you even had COVID or not. Um, and I went back and forth with the director of this CDC for, for my five allotted minutes. And at about five minutes and 10 seconds in, right as my buzzer was going off, I got him to agree to say yes, that he would make COVID testing free for every single American. Now, 
the remarkable thing about that to me is that I didn't have to make any law. Hmm. We had a law on the books written for just this kind of a public health emergency that allowed the CDC director to make this kind of, hmm. of decision and determination. And so I think, you know, for me, what I'm most proud of is is sometimes it's about taking, sometimes the affirmative action that we need to be taking is sometimes it's reinvention and it's thinking of new things, but sometimes it's picking up things and expecting them to work. And we have a lot of that in government where like, well, of course that doesn't work. That program doesn't work, this program doesn't work. Some of these programs do work and we ought to be figuring out which ones do and investing more in them, right? This was the big argument for the child tax credit. That program works. The early research on universal basic income suggests that that program works better than the whole host of things we've built around it. And so I think for me, it's, it's been willing to, to press people to kind of use the tools that they have. So if you're a CEO, you have tremendous ability to influence the outcomes of your workers' lives, but also of your work, the children of your workers and of the community where you have your, your headquarters or your factory or your retail. Are you using that power? So I think for me, it's, it's been not about sort of my power, I passed this, I did this, I'm proud of those things, but it's more about pressing others mm -hmm. in as honest of a way as I can to use the power that they have that I think is in a really important tool of leadership that I think we've lost a little bit in this kind of narcissistic, like, here's all the things I've done. Sometimes the greatest thing you can do is to, is to prompt somebody else to, to be their best self, right? And I think that's a kind of leadership too. Um, in answer to your question, I mean, I, I, don't, I've, I hate to flounder here at the end, but I don't really know where to fully start there. Um, I do think that we need research-based policies. I think that we've lost our way. One of the things Washington really needs is ideas. Um, and I, I, that might sound like a small task, but it's really not. Um, one of the hardest things for me in, about being new to Congress, and I've been there five years. I've been through a couple of impeachments, an insurrection, the longest shutdown in government history, a war in the Middle East. I mean, and I've been there five years. Um, this is my five-year anniversary, like a couple days ago. Um, is what we don't have a lot of is um, new ideas. So one of the hardest things is when you say to people, like, I want to work on childcare. I got to Congress, I really wanted to work on childcare, bringing down the cost of childcare without pushing caregivers deeper and deeper into the poverty they're already struggling with, particularly women of color. And what I was told was like, well, that's so-and-so's issue. You should talk to so-and-so. So I went and talked to so-and-so, and they said, well, yes, I have a great bill on that. I've introduced it in every Congress since 1992. And it's like, well, how's that working out for you? Like, we, we have to be willing to kind of have that debate within our party. And I think one of the, thi one of the things that is most difficult about this moment is I would say 90%, maybe 95% of the political dialogue is about what's wrong with the other party and what's better about us. Mm -hmm. And I spend almost all of my time talking about what the problems are in our country and how we can solve them. Because I actually want Republicans to be part of the solution. And I'm not confident they always will be, but, but that has to be our aspiration. Um, and so I think that's something that, 
It's, it's a way for me of being able to be deeply progressive and yet deeply nonpartisan. And I think that is, uh, you know, I'm, it's a, I'm a little bit of a unicorn. Like you're not supposed to be able to be progressive and win in a place like Newport Beach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, I, I think that's something that we need to find our way to in terms of how we, we need to solve problems, um, is to be willing to not compromise on what we want to achieve but to be deeply willing to compromise on who we, who we talk to about it, mm-hmm. who we listen mm-hmm. to about it, who we learn from about it, who we bring into the solving of the problem. Yeah, thank you so much. This is incredible, enlightening, uh, inspiring. I really, I, I wanna just close by, I bless you with strength, uh, with continued moral clarity, with continued creativity and imagination. We're very grateful for your voice in Congress. Before everyone gets up, I just want to ask, can Armenian Cetic leadership just rise for a moment? I want everyone to get eyes on past, present, past and present. We'll decide about the future. So if you have questions about how to get involved in our justice work, and a few people did ask me this right after services, please come speak to uh, any of these folks, and and we'll help hook you into the work. Um, But thank you so much for being the voice that you are. We're really deeply grateful. Um, And Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Uh, May it be a week of peace. We're going to close with Birkat Amazon, so please feel free to join me or get up and schmooze. uh, And and please uh, help bust your plates. And thank you to our team that stayed late today so we could have this conversation. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.